Good morning. Stopped snowing for a day. (laughs) This has been quite the uh, intense winter so far. It's so good to be with all of you and to see some of you whom I haven't seen in quite some time, True Heart, down from Canada. And you sent us your weather first. On December 30th, just before our New Year's ceremony and celebration at Dabusatsu Zendo, we had a memorial service for the partner of uh, one of our students, Nancy Hano, and her partner's name, Lee Wharton. Some of you may have seen him in various theatrical performances on or off Broadway. But he was also, especially the last 30 years of his life, very much involved with documentary filmmaking. And she sent us the link to an award-winning film that he made concerning world hunger. And one section of this film, which is what she sent, was on Mother Teresa. And it's quite an interesting, uh, about an hour long documentary, more about his own life and how he came to meet her and what happened to the footage, it disappeared, and why it languished for some almost uh, 30 years before finally being made into a film. Most uh, compelling part of the film for me was the actual interview footage with Mother Teresa. I know you watched it too, Togan. And um, so much of what she said in this film and this interview with Lee resonates deeply with the training as bodhisattvas that is our life's work. Perhaps you don't think of it that way, coming here so faithfully, sitting every day, supporting the Sangha, whether you feel like going to the Zendo or not, living here as residents. But it is exactly that. Bodhisattva training. And we really deeply feel it when we are able to do frequent session. The session mind, which becomes more and more less and less. By that I mean Mushin. The longer we sit is the absolute prerequisite for this living as bodhisattvas. 
Otherwise, what happens is we have some idea about some poor sucker that we're going to help. So, <clears throat> Mother Teresa in this interview um, corrected Lee's ideas to begin with. First of all, she told him, well, if you really want to understand what we're doing at our mission, you have to go out there on the street. You have to go where we go. And you have to let go of your preconceptions about what it is to be of service. So she suggested a few places for him to visit, including the leper colony. And he was like, uh... I don't think I can go there. And she said, well, you shouldn't go there, because if you go there, you'll project your fear, and that's not what people need. But she guided him, and uh, then became very philosophical about the nature of poverty, and I think surprised him by telling him that the real poverty is to be found in his own culture, at his own level. She said, people have no time to smile at one another. They die without anyone knowing they exist. In your culture, not here on the streets in India, but where you live. She said, the lonely young ones are unwanted, forgotten. They don't know what it is to be smiled at, to be touched, even in homes where they have every material thing except love. And some of you may have read, uh, as I did a few Sundays ago, the uh, New York Times magazine on anxiety among young people. It's extraordinary to have everything you need and yet something so lacking, so deeply disturbing in our so-called first world nations. She said there's starvation for love, poverty of human love, a terrible loneliness in wealthy countries like the USA. And then reflecting on her own work, she said, people die for want of a piece of bread, but many more die for want of a little understanding. There's such hunger for connection, for being wanted. And this poverty is much greater. A plate of rice doesn't take away the hunger for God, for justice, for peace.
And she told him, we see people who are suffering because they're clinging to their own pain. If you're clinging to pain, you cannot give. Love means action, service. And we cannot be holy, or we may put it, we cannot really enact our bodhisattva vow unless we love. Prayer is fundamental to human life. And here she is equating prayer with love. Some of you who grew up in the Catholic faith may have some memory of a particularly evocative priest or nun who really communicated that, yes? Prayer is fundamental to human life. And we might say to sit with no idea whatsoever is the way we enter into this prayer, this love, this Buddha nature that is the nature of each one of us. Nothing but this prayer. Same. But we put so many things in the way. We think we need to do such and such. We make it so complicated that we don't even realize how we're complicating things. There's this big gap. And Lee Wharton then marveled at the people he was meeting who would come to work with her at the mission, bringing with them only a bedroll. No worldly goods needed. Maybe some of you remember the admonitions of Daito Kokushi, where he says, if you have shoulders, clothing will come. If you have a mouth, food will come. When we are so concerned about what kind of food how the style of the clothes should be, or any of these other irrelevant material matters. We create these complications. We cannot see directly. So he said, ministering to the dying, working with lepers, taking care of so many thousands of unwanted children, 
homeless people, starving people. How do you do this work? She said, we choose poverty in order to understand the poor. We cannot come from a condescending place in our bodhisattva work, right? We must be. We must understand that when we are deeply in our zazen mind, samadhi, there is nothing that separates us. This is the point of our practice. When we see someone in need, we are that person. We are not taking on some role of being someone who helps someone who needs something. And she said, our undivided love for God is expressed directly in action. It's how we live. It's not something we interpret, in other words, or try to make a plan for, or a formula. Has a ring to it, yes? No formula, Sabuti. We just are this. This is who we truly are. This Buddha mind is what our minds are. Everything else that gets in the way, we must get rid of it. Let it go. That's why we do this practice. Exhaling. Completely. Letting go over and over again. Think about your last moment. What will be in your mind? If there is anything in your mind but just love, you will be reborn in that concern, that issue, that unnecessary formula. So over and over again we practice letting the whole thing go so that the inhalation is an inhalation of pure love. Isn't this wonderful? We can do this with every round of our breath. There is no intellectual theory involved in this. She said, as I just quoted, it's how we live. It's 24 hours a day. It's not simply a matter of deciding to go to the zendo once a week, once a month, one session out of the year. I mean, come on. That's not practice. It's 24 hours a day. There's no time off. 
I don't have to tell you guys this because you're here. But being here, your role is to reach out to others and let them feel this. It's not a matter of telling them. Let them feel your conviction. Invite them in. This inviting is so important. This is not a practice we do for ourselves. This 24 hours a day, giving it all away. And so, of course, Mother Teresa says to wash, to feed. This is expressing our love for Jesus. It's his work, not mine. And this is no different from understanding deeply without the intellect getting in the way that we are here to wake up. It is not our small existence separate from, but one with. When we awaken, as the Buddha said, all beings awaken simultaneously. If we cannot have the faith in our own birthright as Buddhas, then how can we be of service to anyone? And if you don't feel that faith, it's because you aren't doing this practice 24 hours a day. It's that simple. Does that mean you cannot finish your dissertation? Hell no. Get to it. It means you have that energy because you know that what you have to say is needed. It is an expression of your Buddha mind as ecology. What could be more completely one? Right? So whatever anyone is doing in your life, playing the cello, studying scientific theory, whatever it is, going to jail. Every week she goes to jail. (laughs) This is so wonderful. How could it be anything but just giving this away? 24 hours a day, we have chosen to be here. Then she said, We are contemplatives in the heart of the world. And of course, for Mother Teresa, the heart of the world is the teeming city of Calcutta. Hmm? Wherever you look, there are thousands of people lying on the streets in the heart of the world, not in some ivory tower, not in some pleasant little place where she can be having some respite from the world, but right in the heart of it, in the heart of our bodies. We may think our bodies have difficulties and we would rather be in somebody else's body. Well, soon enough, you will be. But how about this body? How about this world? 
We have work to do. Then Mother Teresa told him, when we know the poor, we love them. We see how beautiful they are. And I would say that for us, when we are intimate with whatever, whoever, however, what we, just in this very moment, right? You look around right here, right now. Have you ever seen anyone more beautiful? Some are old, some are infirm, some are young, some are creaky, some have trouble breathing, whatever it is. Here we are, every single one of you, so beautiful. Don't be shy about your own beauty. This is what you are offering. Your beautiful Buddha mind is what you are offering. So never think, oh, maybe someday. Uh, yeah, but not now. When? And she said, we work in freedom from politics. Whoever happens to be in office, whatever. We just do what we're doing. And some of us may think, well, maybe after this administration, we'll be able to do something. This is when we need to work. Right here, right now. It's not a matter of politics, she says. Because we work in freedom from politics, we're free to surrender to doing this work of God's love. It doesn't mean we are not aware of the difficulties created by right-wing oligarchs. It means more than ever we're needed to do this practice in every possible way, 24 hours a day. So having listened to this uh, interview, then I was reading The New Yorker of New Year's Day, and there was a wonderful article called The People That Walked in Darkness. This is about the street symphony performing Handel's Messiah on Skid Row. Some of you have probably been in L.A. and may be aware of the extraordinary problem of homelessness there. It's a because of the warm weather, it's almost like India if you go to certain sections. Um, so right now there's a group of professional musicians working with um, the Street Symphony, uh, called the Street Symphony, working with homeless, mentally ill, and incarcerated populations. One of them, Brian Palmer, was a homeless person struggling to overcome heroin addiction and went to a recovery center at the heart of Skid Row. Do you know what Skid Row is in L.A.? 
It's a huge tent city right in the middle of the vast city of L.A. with its soaring skyscrapers and extraordinarily wealthy homes. Skid Row. And so he started singing and became a part of Urban Voices Project. And there are so many interesting people who are written about in this story. I hope you'll have a chance to read it. I'll leave this here. The uh, writer says, there are about 58,000 homeless people in Los Angeles County. I don't know, 58,000 seems like a lot to me. What do we have here in Syracuse? 58,000 out of 200, if you can imagine. To walk through the streets of Skid Row to the Midnight Mission, the writer says, is to feel shame for the state of the city and the state of the country. Block after block, the sidewalks are crammed with tents, boxes, broken furniture, and shopping carts full of possessions. To enter the mission, you have to step over people in sleeping bags. But when you go to the Midnight Mission, with Vijay Gupta, an L.A. Philharmonic violinist who in 2011 founded the Street Symphony. It's quite, quite a different experience. And uh, Gupta actually was criticizing what he says the, the typical um, outreach programs in classical music. He said, you have to wonder who that outreach is actually for, who it's for. A bunch of musicians show up, play their beautiful music, and leave. For people on the inside, maybe it brightens their day a bit, but If you're going to make any difference, you have to show up a lot more often, and not just when you feel like it. Sound familiar? Mother Teresa's work? This community, Gupta says, is one defined by trauma. In their lives, someone didn't show up. We gotta fucking show up. And this is the way you feel when you go to Auburn or you go to the county jail or anywhere you go where people are congregating in uh, ways they wouldn't have chosen. They all have had this experience where someone didn't show up. To be ignored, to be starved for love, So Gupta himself grew up in upstate New York and was a Juilliard student. He entered that program, that pre-college program, when he was seven. And 
then got a seat with the L.A. Phil at 19. And soon after he moved to L.A., he got to know a homeless musician. Now, this is someone you may actually know about because a film was made about him. His name is Nathaniel Alver. I can't read what I wrote here. It's Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S, yeah. Nathaniel Ayers. He had been a star double bass student at Juilliard in the early 1970s before paranoid schizophrenia forced him to drop out, and he ended up living on the streets of L.A., playing for passersby on a broken two-stringed violin. Then, a columnist for the L.A. Times went to the director of public relations for the L.A. Philharmonic with the idea of bringing this guy to a rehearsal at Disney Hall. He went and continued coming back, and then Gupta began giving him informal violin lessons. The book came out about Ayers, written by uh, the columnist for the LA Times, Steve Lopez, called The Soloist. And I saw the film, maybe some of you saw it. It's pretty remarkable. So he's been, Ayers has been in and out of institutions in the intervening years, but they all stay in touch. And he attended the Street Symphony's first Messiah and followed along with the players. And Gupta himself has been performing at shelters, hospices, clinics, and prisons, and launched this street symphony with another member of the L.A. Phil violin section. And he said, when we get back to the Phil, we're different, better musicians. One time, we were doing a Schumann in a mental ward at the Twin Towers Correctional Facility, the huge downtown jail. A guy who'd studied music at a Cal State school said to me, you know, these guys had real shit happen to them. Bach was an orphan. Beethoven was beaten by his dad. Brahms had to play in brothels. And Schumann, he died in a place like this. And Gupta said, that still gives me chills. I'll never play Schumann the same way again. So this year, the ensemble offered the Messiah and also We Need Darkness to See the Stars, a new composition by Benjamin Shirley, who lived at the Midnight Mission from 2011 to 2013. He had been a bass player with a rock group and then got involved with substance abuse and then began getting sober and started writing music. So he is working with someone who's Street Symphony's composer in residence. And he said, I was one of these guys on the edge. Now I'm here as a composer. How did that happen? It's not a one-man show. 
not a one-man show. So then this writer of the article, I didn't tell you his name, Alex Ross, says, after listening to the music and feeling the spell and marveling at who's playing together and how and how line after line of the Messiah feels especially acute on Skid Row. He says, The spell dissolves when you leave the midnight mission. The people that walked in darkness are still there. Hard stairs greet you as you proceed to your car. This feeling is, if anything, even worse than the one that hits you going in. The entire experience is at once exalting and crushing, luminous and bleak. We get to leave, Gupta said. That's the source of our shame. The only way to deal with it is to go back. Wonderful? So maybe you have copies of this New Yorker here at Hoenji. If not, I'll leave it. And then just one more thing to share with you. I was rereading Seeds for a Boundless Life by my dear old friend Zenke Blanche Hartman. And she writes about the homelessness that is what we take on when we are ordained. She said, one thing leaving home means is to find your home wherever you are. To realize that wherever you are is home. Not to be seeking for some special place, to be making some cozy nest, but to find yourself at home, wherever you are and whatever circumstances you may be in. Being at home wherever you are means being comfortable wherever you are. This comfort is what Mother Teresa exhibits in this interview so fully. She is just comfortable with this, with these people. No different from her. One with. Right here in this very body, in this very place as it is, to be at home. And this is certainly a challenge when we have some mental or physical instability, difficulty, chronic pain, you name it. Right here in this very body, in this very place, as it is, as we chanted just a little while ago, this very place is the lotus land of purity. It's not out there someplace where we're going to somehow get, if we're 
good practitioners. No, it's right here. This is it. This very body is the body of the Buddha. If we don't believe this, then we cannot accept things as they are. And we cannot serve those who are suffering much more than we can fathom. So, she says, that's one way we can think about what this homeless life is. Commitment and renunciation are significant elements in what a home lever is. Shaving the head is symbolic of renunciation. But is what is really to be renounced is self-clinging. Shaving the head is just to remind us to renounce whatever it is that we cling to, whatever it is that we attach to. Let it go. Let our life flow through our hands like a river. Not try to grab some piece of it and hold on to it. Oh, I like that. That was good. That was good samadhi. Where'd it go? I gotta get it back. No, of course not. Just to be present with it and find out how to express our vow in this moment, in this circumstance, right where we are right now. Instead of trying to figure out how to make it the way we want so that it'll be just what we always dreamed of, it won't be. There will be many surprises. Just to welcome your life as it arrives, moment after moment, to meet it as fully as you can, being as open to it as you can, being as ready for whatever arises as you can, and meeting it wholeheartedly. This is renunciation. So all of you, whether you become monks and nuns, whether you continue your practice as lay people, this fundamental renunciation is what we are doing here together with the whole